Hey, you're listening to Mig's Front Page with Peter Movilla. Today we'll be reviewing the paper titled Effective Perioperative Transfusion on Postoperative Morbidity Following Minimally Invasive Hysterectomy for Benign Indications. Here, the study performed a retrospective cohort using the American College of Surgeons National Surgical Quality Improvement Program database. They were able to extract 90,231 patients who underwent minimally invasive hysterectomy for benign indications, with 1.6% of them receiving a perioperative transfusion that was associated with a significant increase in infectious wound events, septic events, and thromboembolic events. Today we have with us the first author of the paper, Dr. Paul Tyan, a current fellow in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at the University of North Carolina. Thanks for being here, Paul. I'm Thank you for having me, Peter. Well, sure. So, Paul, tell me, what was the motivation for this study? What were you thinking when you kind of created the whole um, background for this paper? So one of my motivations to uh, publish on the subject is the actual transfusion guidelines that uh, were published more than a decade ago about uh, who needs to be transfused and when to transfuse and what not, when not to transfuse. And uh, for some reason, um, probably because of the way our medical uh, education system is, uh, is designed, uh, those easy um, numbers are uh, always the ones that come up when you, whenever you have a conversation in a clinical setting on who to transfuse and who not to transfuse. And probably you've heard it many times, uh, someone who has a hemoglobin less than six, you should transfuse them. Someone who has a hemoglobin less than seven with heart disease is indicated for transfusion. And anyone who has a hemoglobin less than 10 who uh, you think warrants a transfusion to better oxygenate their tissue, uh, you should transfuse. Um, prompted me to uh, investigate more and look more into it and kind of highlight why um, transfusion is not always the best idea. A lot, of a lot of work has been done in other fields and I wanted to, um, to uh, publish in the, same, uh, in the same subject for minimally invasive UN surgery. Let's talk about the results. How about table one? With the way we did this paper is we captured anyone who had a transfusion three days before the surgery during surgery and three days after the surgery. And we labeled that as perioperative transfusion. It looks like you guys noticed that between the two groups, the transfused and not transfused, the patients who got transfused during surgery tend to be a younger cohort. Since mm -hmm. that race had a factor, so non-Caucasians got transfused more. Those who don't smoke. And then some with more comorbidities, such as um, increased dialysis use, those with increasing weight loss, those with blood disorders, those with chronic steroid use, and those who started out with a lower hematocrit. Correct. Sound surprising? Um, not really. None of those uh, results were surprising. Um, people who are uh, women who, uh, who are uh, sicker, who, has, who have a lower starting uh, hemo hemoglobin hematocrit, um, are uh, more likely to, uh, to need a transfusion after surgery or during or before surgery. As you can see here, we, um, we went through we went through every single um, um, variable that the Nesquip collects to include everything that would be considered as a confounder, anything that could be uh, interesting to the reader. And we came up with table, with table one. We tried to be as transparent as we could by including, uh, by including everything, things that could uh, sway you to think that uh, there are maybe other um, uh, reasons why we saw the, the outcomes that we did. Transition to the actual results of the paper, it looks like um, in terms of table three, you had an increase in wound complications, thromboembolic events, and sepsis events. 
Correct. These patients had 4.2% of wound complications compared to just 2.1% of those without blood transfusion. Correct. Thromboembolic events, it was a 0.9% chance if you had transfusion versus 0.3% chance if you didn't. So tra transfusion is not as benign as we think. Yeah. Giving someone a red blood cell transfusion doesn't just increase their red blood, red blood cell volume and improve their tissue oxygenation. There's a, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, whenever we counsel our patients in clinic about transfusion, we tell them there is a risk of infections. If you want to be really specific, you talk about AIDS, Hep B, and Hep C. If you want to be extra uh, thorough with your counseling, you talk about prions, you talk about um, uh, immediate immune reactions. But actually, it's much more profound than that. So you transfuse someone and you think that they just got the extra volume of red blood cells, but that's not, the, that's not the case. You acutely suppress them, you suppress them for the post-operative recovery, and then you immune suppress them for the long term. So this is why, this is why sorry, this was a bit lengthy, but this is how we came up with the, with the idea of looking at the infection rates, sepsis, and uh, post-operative infections, and looking at uh, DVT because of the, um, because of the pathophysiology that goes into uh, clotting after surgery that's disrupted by a transfusion. And it looks like table four was a multivariate logistic regression that shows the adjusted odds ratio. Um, what were some of the things you noticed from there? Wood complications when you're talking about superficial deep uh, surgical site infections, uh, organ space infections, 1.96 for patients who were transfused, thromboembolic events for those um, I think we included um, deep vein thrombosis, PEs, and CPAs. And for sepsis events, it was anything that uh, came back positive for sepsis or, sepsi or septic shock. And all those were outcomes within 30 days of surgery. Yeah. Okay, Paul, we have a clinical scenario here for you. We have a 32-year-old G3P3 with a known history of fibroids who's coming for a pre-op counseling appointment before a scheduled total laparoscopic hysterectomy with bilateral stop injectomy. It's planned in two weeks. We just got a pelvic ultrasound that showed a 14 centimeter uterus in the largest dimension and a complete blood count just showed a hematocrit of 25.2. What's your preoperative management for this patient um, in hopes of decreasing your blood transfusion? And do you suggest delaying the case? Short answer. I would definitely, I would definitely delay the case. So this paper just talks about uh, transfusion and its effect on post-operative morbidity. But anemia is also a huge risk factor for several uh, morbid outcomes after surgery. We are in a very uh, special field because the vast majority of our surgeries are, um, are done in the non-emergent setting. If you look at, the, at, at big databases and you try to exclude the hysterectomies that were done in, in an urgent or emergent setting, they would come up less than 1% in every single data that you run. So, you can, you're, 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 in a, you're in a clinical scenario where you can manage those patients in clinic and optimize them for surgery. I think uh, your surgery starts the second you see your patient in clinic. It doesn't start when uh, you do your timeout uh, during surgery. There are two things that, that I would do for a, for a patient that comes to my clinic with, with similar clinical findings. And we do this on a, on a regular, I'm going to say almost daily basis. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a twofold approach. The first one is you need to suppress their bleeding. And we're very effective in, um, as um, gynecologic surgeons or gynecologists in um, effectively stopping someone from having uh, severe bleeding that would uh, cause them to be anemic. So a bunch of hormone therapies, I'm not going to delve into 
this aspect of, of the treatment because most, most of the people who are going to listen to this uh, podcast are uh, experts in the field. Uh, but for the other part, which is the, the anemia, anemia correction part, I think we have extremely effective methods in increasing someone's hematocrit in a very short period of time, um, such as IV iron, for example. Somebody who gets uh, IV iron um, a month before surgery in two doses can increase their hemoglobin by, and this is the only published paper and one of the only published papers in GYN surgery, by 2.2 grams per deciliter, or that's equivalent to almost 7% or 7 uh, points in hematocrit. So you would take that patient within one month by suppressing their bleeding and giving them IV iron to, and the, to the 33 range. And I think you're at this point, you're at a, at a much better place to have that patient optimized for surgery. Um, I don't see any reason to rush someone to go to the operating room. Um, even, even if the patient is, um, is um, anxious about getting uh, her surgery as soon as possible, I think um, uh, a detailed conversation and a counseling session that goes into the risk and the benefits. Now it's data-driven. We have some uh, data to highlight the risk of a transfusion. Uh, would helpfully sway them in waiting for at least two or two or three more weeks. In your paper, you said that the U.S. spends about three point one billion dollars annually on blood transfusions, and that might be one of the most overutilized treatments based on kind of what you're discussing right now. Besides just some clinical implications that your paper have, it might also contribute to decreasing the waste that we do in our healthcare system. Savings. We um, giving uh, you you would have you would have someone argue. Uh, that giving, uh, giving an IV iron infusion expensive and it's not a warranted expense that you're adding on the patient. But transfusion, transfusions are also really expensive. And I think this number that I quote here in the, in the, in the paper just uh, looks in a very uh, um, close-minded, uh, narrow setting at the cost that we incur just by transfusing. I don't think, um, or actually there is some work on the costs that are uh, incurred by the morbidity associated. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a snowball effect. And um, it's better practice. If you, if you prevent one morbidity, it's worth it. Well, Paul, or should I say, Dr. Zayan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for contributing to the medical literature in our field with this very good and influential paper. I really do hope a lot of people get to read this and learn from what your results show. I think it really can change clinical practice. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for the great work you're doing. Um, just uh, getting this very helpful information to uh, people who are interested. Uh, thank you so much. This is amazing. That's all we have for you today with Meg's front page. Please tune in for our next podcast. And I hope you enjoyed um, learning everything with us today. Goodbye.